Board Round, session number five. The moment you step foot on campus as a medical student, you are gearing up for one of the biggest tests you'll ever have to take, USMLE Step 1 or Comlex Level 1. The medical school headquarters and board vitals are going to help you prepare for your first board exam with questions, pearls of information, and guidance to make sure you have what it takes to score high and match into your specialty of choice. Welcome back to Board Rounds. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. I'm excited to continue to do this podcast with Dr. Andrea Paul from Board Vitals. Now, if you don't know what Board Vitals is, they are a testing platform to help you prepare for every step of your journey as a medical student, whether it's step one, level one, step two, step three, or all the shelf exams that you have to take as a medical student, but even beyond that as well, once you are out in practice. With their QBanks and everything that they have to offer you, you are sure to be prepared for your test when it comes to test day. Go to boardvitals.com and save 15% when using the promo code BOARDROUNDS. That's all capital letters, no spaces, BOARDROUNDS as the promo code. This week, we're talking about what score you should be shooting for when you're preparing for step one and level one. Andrea, back for some more board rounds. I want to pick up where we kind of left off last episode. We were talking about being realistic with scores and and not everybody is is cut out to to go into dermatology because you need a, a high step one score to be realistic to match into a highly competitive specialty like dermatology. Let's talk first about the scores that students need need is in air quotes, um, Mm -hmm. to get these residencies that they want, what scores should students be looking at to shoot for? So yeah, it's what's interesting. So USMLE actually has some kind of secret recipe that they score with and they don't disclose it. It's it's all very secretive. But the scores range from one to 300, basically, but they won't officially say that. So you want most people score between 140 and 260. You do need a 194 as of last year to pass. So anything, you know, 193 and below would be a failing score. And then the average this last year was 229. Um, wow. Yeah, <laughs> which is way higher than when I was in med school. Like yeah. Significantly higher. So the standard deviation on that is 20. So you're looking at, you know, 209 to 249 for, you know, you know one standard deviation either way, which is incredible incredibly high. <laughs> so well, I want to uh, stop you there real quick. Yeah. Uh, remember where you were going with that. Why do you think the the averages increase so much? Well, I think people recognize, you know, well, competition and then people recognize this, you know, high stakes of this test more than ever ever before. They, we haven't been expanding numbers of residency programs, but we are have expanded the number of applicants to those mm-hmm. residency programs and so I think people are recognizing that they really need to score quite, quite high. And especially if you're an international uh, medical student yeah. um, to be considered for a residency program, you need, to, you know, you need to really add quite a bit to your score as well. Yeah. I wonder how much the internet and just the availability of information plays into that. Cause when I went to med school and the internet's still relatively new, the iPhone wasn't around yet. And so we have all this information at our, our fingertips and, and it, we're more aware of it. Versus when I was, I kept 
saying, I keep saying that I was naive to how important step one was to this whole process. Oh yeah. I, I mean, I definitely was too. I think we, I did as a component of my studying at that time, use a question bank, but it was just very different than how they are right. now. It was very, very basic and no you know, real functionality. And so for the most part, used paper materials to study. So I think definitely this, you know, goes back to the, the fact that the more practice questions people are doing in these question banks leads to the higher scores. So that I'm sure that's inflated the scores somewhat as well. Yeah. All right. Back to um, your thoughts of where you were headed. Oh, so yeah, I was just going to say the complex also is similarly scored on a, a three digit score. And so that ranges, but that it's more of a nine, it goes from nine to nine ninety nine, So just under a thousand. And the average there last year was 500. Uh, most people score between 250 and 800 on the complex and uh, 400 was the passing score. So it's a similar scale, just almost like a doubled, mm-hmm. um, well. So, so what score people need is the question. And, uh, that'll depend a lot depending on whether you took the USMLA or complex and what kind of program you're applying to. Do you have, and this is something we can pull in and maybe put in the show notes, but I was wondering if you had at your fingertips kind of average step one scores for different specialties. I do. All <laughs> right. I was glad. I'm glad you're a preparer. Um, so let's, yeah. let's go through some of these. So okay. for me, I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. Right, what, what's the average step one score for people who are matching into orthopedics? So interesting. I mean, the landscape of competitiveness of different areas has, you know, changed for a lot for some specialties quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Like anesthesia used to be one of the most competitive, um, and that's decreased in desirability of different careers. Obviously, changes over time for a lot of reasons, but mm-hmm. it's quite interesting. But some that have stayed on the top of that list have always been dermatology, orthopedic surgery, um, and then otolaryngology or ENT. And neurosurgery, I would say, has, has always been up there as well. So for 2018, so last year for USMLE, the average score for people who match in orthopedic surgery was 248. Okay. So that's within that one standard deviation, right? If I remember. It is. Yeah. It is. But then remember, that's the average, right? Yeah. So we're starting from that 248. So that means people had, you know, up to the perfect 260 in that group. And so, you know, it's extremely, extremely high and um, dermatology, not too far off with 249. ENT or otolaryngology was also 248 last year, neurosurgery at 245. And so even the least, quote, competitive specialties had quite high average scores last year. Family medicine was 220, which actually is the highest it's been. And so with, you know, competition for these few residency spots coming from really all over the world at this point. Scores are just continuing to increase. That's because students are using board vitals. Well, I would like to, you know, <laughs> I'd like to credit to, to us. I think, you know, it's great when we, we help people get a good score, but you know, there's always, it's just a, a sheer number of people competing for these few spots that really requires people to study harder and score higher. So. Yeah. That's a, such a important part of the application process. And it's it's hard for me to think about that, right? I, I've been living in the pre-med world for so long with the, the pre-med years podcast and talking about the MCATs and medical school applications. I'm like, you're more than your stats. You're more than your stats. If there's something unique in your application, 
it'll help you stand out even with with average stats. Mm -hmm. But then when we talk to medical students, I'm like, step one, it's all about step one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so you, of course you want to get in, you know, if you're looking at say dermatology and the average score is 249, you're definitely going to be aiming for something over that 249. But of course the other things still do matter um, depending on, you know, what geographic area you're looking at, what experience you have, maybe what, you know, your letters of recommendation look like. So they, it does still factor in. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah. And that's why there is a variation in, in scores. So there's no, a, there's yeah. no specific cutoff. It's not like a failing score. So if you're below this, you won't, you can't match into that. It's definitely not the case. Yeah. There are people with two twenties who uh, match in dermatology. And so, you know, it's always good to still apply, even if you're not in the range, it does not hurt to, to still try. Yep. And those people who are getting 220s and matching probably have networked and are maybe doing research and are plugged into that program director that ultimately accepts them. So it's there's a, there's still a lot more. I, I joke uh, that it's all step one, but it's it's such a much more important factor uh, yeah. than than uh, the medical school application process. So it's exactly. huge. It kind of gets you in the door or on the on the table, if you will, yep. for a lot of these areas. But after that, they're not going to pick a 249 over 248 because score it'll yep. be based on that person in the interview and such so you know it's good to aim high uh, one of my friends always likes to say you know shoot for the stars if you land on the moon it's okay yeah <laughs> so. you know it's good if you want it derm- dermatology definitely aim for 260 like try and get a perfect score but when you get 230 it doesn't mean you can't mm-hmm. do it <laughs> so i want to backtrack just for a second you you talked about how usmle kind of keeps their secrets close to their chest. What does does Comlex reveal how they score their exam at all? No, it's a, I mean it's a similar scoring process where they have I think both of them integrate a lot of would use the word test questions if that's confusing, but sort of questions that are not officially scored mm-hmm. uh, yet and they're sort of testing them out. And so they don't reveal how many of the questions are of call, that, let's call right? them beta questions. Exactly. Beta questions. Yeah. There you go. So it's not like other board exams will disclose, like, for example, you know, the psychiatry boards, they disclose that, you know, 20 or whatever it is each year are not going to be scored. They don't tell you which ones they are, obviously, on the test, but yeah. they reassure people that you may see something that you haven't prepared for. And that's, <laughs> don't let it throw okay you off. Because it may be a, te- you know, maybe a beta question. Yeah. And so, um, but the USMLE comics don't necessarily reveal or, or have a set disclosure on on those and every every standardized exam has to do that that's the only way they can get realistic feedback on new content that they're trying to bring in and so i think it's just a matter of trying to keep that you know manage that in a way that won't scare students too much yeah okay interesting so looking at that data the average step one score for students what is the breakdown for osteopathic students for COMLEX scores? Is there a similar breakdown for residency? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's the, I would say highest scoring and lowest scoring. It really falls out exactly the same way as USMLE does. So dermatology is the highest and family medicine, the lowest also in COMLEX. And it's, you know, it's for a lot of reasons, but um, their average score for matched candidates was 566 last year. Mm. And then, so some of the higher scoring specialties of radiology, for example, was around a 615 
uh, whereas family medicine for complex was around 520. So it's really quite a similar, you know, correlation with you know, different competitiveness of different specialties. Mm, which makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Just different numbers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Do you know for, do you, do you have any data for osteopathic students who want to, at this point where there's still some allopathic only programs, is there any data that shows osteopathic students what they need to score versus an allopathic student? So no one specifically looked at, I mean, there's, there as anecdotal data that, that osteopathic students in some geographic areas and some specific institutions have a disadvantage, but you know, there's no specific data and no, nobody really wants to speak directly um, <laughs> to that yeah. issue. I would say if you're an osteopathic student and you want to, you know, apply to a traditionally very, you know, more, more traditional MD, you know, big name institution that maybe you look through their past few classes, you don't see a single DO, you know, A, you may not, you may want to consider, you know, if that's something that would be a good fit, if you would feel, you know, comfortable and, and it's great if you would, because it would obviously help shift things for some more diversity. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's, that's one consideration and also, you know, trying to make sure your scores are maybe not only competitive, but maybe try and shine so much that they can't ignore your application. Um, and mm-hmm. so, so, you know, it's, it's a tough one. Something, you know, highly discussed on a lot of physician forums and, you know, in places that I've lived, I haven't even really considered whether my co-residents or colleagues were MD or DO. It just didn't. It was so common and felt yeah. the same to me. Whereas I talk to people in other geographic areas, maybe that don't have an osteopathic school um, and they're just less familiar. And so there's definitely you know, a lack of maybe education on, on what background DOs come in with. And, yeah. um, you know, and so that's, I think it, as this merger, quote unquote merger happens, that'll start to change. And, and I think it's, you know, it's a good thing. It's funny, I've never thought about it that way. When, when you talk about, well, there's, there's not an osteopathic school around there. And so I think we as humans, we, we fear what we don't know. And it's like, oh, that's different. That must not be good. And so there's this bias that kind of lingers in those areas. It's, it's interesting. I, don't, I never thought about it that way. Uh, yeah, but that, that plays it. out among everything with race and, and eth- ethnic divides yeah. and everything. Definitely. And it trickles you know, part of it is from patients to um, institutions and areas like that, where there may be just so few DOs that they worry about how patients will respond or, mm-hmm. um, you know, concerns on that part. And so some of it, you know, it's, it trickles over to the actual you know, practice side of yeah. um, clinical practice side of things. And so, but it's, it is definitely changing. I think there are new DO schools opening all over and um, so the numbers many. are growing. Yeah. But, you know, you have to keep in mind, it's still, you know, almost 70% of physicians in this country are MDs. And yeah. so it's just, you know, it just takes time. And we have, you know, a growing number that have the MBBS degree from mm-hmm. um, overseas and then DOs. And it's, you know, I think it's going to be pretty, pretty commonplace and, and will be a non-issue in a few years. Yeah. And I would challenge the student to, uh, if they're doing what you recommend, look, look at those match lists. And if you don't see a DO... Don't let that be a self-perpetuating prophecy. Mm-hmm. Reach out to the program and say, "Hey, I'm an osteopathic student. I really want to come to your program because of X, Y, Z. Like, 
what should I be doing to make myself competitive and see what they say? Yeah, exactly. It always helps to open a dialogue. And um, sometimes it's just nobody's applied because they haven't seen any other DOs there and they Mm -hmm. just figured they didn't have a shot. And so that, you know, exactly could break the pattern. So (laughs) yeah, be the uh, trendsetter. Exactly. All right. So we've talked about scores and kind of what students in air quotes need uh, to get into these certain programs. Again, it's such a a wide range and and obviously you want to try to score as high as you can. Let's talk about a student who gets their score back and they find out they fail. What are those next steps? Yeah. You know, thankfully the pass rates are quite high. So for USMLE last year was around 94%. Uh, for Comlex was around 96%. So, you know, if you haven't taken the test yet, don't panic. It's, you know, it's unlikely outcome. I think the biggest mistake people do is they hide it. They don't want to talk, talk to anyone or you know, tell anyone or tell their school about it or talk to any, you know, with the counselors or admissions people at the school because they're worried, you know, they're embarrassed or there's some stigma around it. And I think that's a big mistake because there's so much help. Every school has just incredible resources for people who didn't pass. And so you're really, and you'd be surprised once, you know, once you open up about it, I had a, a one classmate who um, didn't pass. And once they'd opened up about it, there were, you know, they were connected with people and, you know, seniors and residents who had not passed on their first attempt. And they had this incredible network of support and study uh, assistance that came, you know, rushing in to help them. So I think definitely, you know, it's, it's not a secret. You want to get, you know, get all the help you need and support you need to, to make your next attempt successful. There's a lot of, you can look online, there are tons of forums of, you know, people who are opening up about not passing and eventually passing and how they did that. A lot of schools have great remediation programs too, like I was mm. mentioning, where they even pay for additional prep materials in some cases so because ultimately it's a kind of a stain on the school's record if they have students who aren't passing so they're they're going to try everything they can to help you pass because they they want you to pass they want you to be successful because it looks good for them yeah i guess that's yeah that's another perspective on it is that they want you know they all every school wants the highest possible for really uh, you know all the different areas that we including residency programs for their, for their board, you know, you know, radiology programs, they, oh, psychiatry programs, et cetera. They all want to have all of their residents pass. And it's the same thing with medical school. So they have systems and people in place to help that, you know, help to help you so that you pass on the next attempt. You know, it does seem in some cases like the support, you know, should be there from beginning to prevent that <laughs> happening. But um, in some cases, it's more uh, retroactive. But, um, you know, and then I think don't, don't lose hope. I think look at it as a positive. I think we talked about this before is you've seen the test. <laughs> you've yeah. done it. You know what's on there. And you know how you felt taking it. And so you look, think, look back and think, okay, how did it go wrong? Which areas did I feel like I wasn't prepared? Or maybe it was the format or you know, was I having a bad day? Did I not sleep well? Like, look at everything that happened and try and, you know, try and remediate those things to, you know, give you a better outcome the next time. You may want to totally change how you studied if you feel like it was completely ineffective, or in some cases, just minor tweaks that, you know, you might feel like a specific area or 
schedule or something that you did didn't work out. So maybe change that. But I don't think it should be looked at as a, you know, negative or a hopeless type situation. And if anything, you have an advantage to get like a super, you know, high score on your next attempt. So when or have you seen for, for students who are are preparing for the exam, they're they're getting close to their date and something is is triggering in them, like I shouldn't take this test. I'm not ready for it. There are students out there from the pre-med world who take a gap year to prepare for the MCAT. Are there students, is it allowed? Have you seen the ability for a student to go to their school and say, I'm not ready to take this. You don't want me to take this. I need time and kind of and kind of merge in with the class but behind them to be able to study for the test more? Yeah, I mean, every school is different. I think there are some that require you to, you cannot take clinical rotations until you've passed step one. And others, you know, they have different you know, rules and guidelines on that. But I definitely know of a few uh, students that we've worked with at Board Vitals specifically who did end up having to join, you know, uh, they took a kind of half year and joined their clinical rotations a few months later so that they could retake their step one. So I think schools do make accommodations for that. Most of the time it's because of a failing score, but I don't see why if you just are not prepared and you approach them that they wouldn't prefer to just give you more time to study rather than have that failure on the record. So. Yeah, as we talked about earlier with reaching out to residency programs, opening up that dialogue and asking the question, you you won't get what you don't ask for. And if you're open and honest with the administration, be like, I'm not ready for this. And because of XYZ, Mm -hmm. see what they say. Yeah, and life happens, you know. Um, Yeah. We're not like in in a bubble where all that we have in our lives is this exam. So, of course, there are extraneous situations that can affect your studying and your sleep and your ability to, to do well on the exam. And if you feel like those are overwhelming your ability to study or be prepared, then that's something you need to go to your school and talk about. And, you know, they can definitely help you and make accommodations for giving you time or whatever else you might need. Yeah. Let's talk about non-traditional students for a minute. Now, a lot of students listening to this may be coming from my pre-mid years podcast. And now they're in medical school a large percentage of my pre-med years podcast listeners are non-traditional students. So a lot of non-traditional students are out there. They seem to be increasing more and more. Uh, several years ago, I heard the, the term that non-traditional is the new traditional because students are just doing so many different things nowadays. But you have some data that shows that they tend to do worse on their step one of the boards. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So there are a couple of uh, studies, and these are all obviously all you know have their own biases involved, but that show that non-traditional students tend to score lower on both in their grades in school and then also in on the USMLE or Comlex exams. But there's been a lot of a lot of research into why you know why that is, and no one's really determined exactly why. But knowing, I think if you're a non-traditional student and knowing that you kind of may have this disadvantage, I think it's a good place to kind of look at the various reasons that have been considered. So obviously family family commitments and, and such, if you're someone who has a family are certainly something that affects, I know I have kids and 
I can't imagine having had them in medical school and trying to still focus on everything that's that's required at that time. And so, you know, maybe you know, looking to your family or whatever support systems you have to make sure that you can really maximize that study time and, and do the best you can. It's important. And just recognizing that, you know, it may be a short amount of time where you do need to shift some of your focus to this. Um, looking at, I think also if you're a non-traditional student looking at, okay, well, if you are one that grades did fall below maybe your average in class throughout your preclinical classes, try and and look back and, and think about why and maybe look at what the, you know, ask what the traditional students are doing differently. How much time are they spending studying or how are they studying? Is it maybe a technology gap? Are you less comfortable with using, you know, things like question banks or online resources? <laughs> are you stereotyping old people don't know how to use computers? Not at all. I, am, <laughs> I actually, you know, I didn't use question banks much when I was a med student, but I definitely, you know, I would think that some of some biotech uh, study tools are pretty complicated to yeah. use. And if you're just not comfortable and you'd like to stick to a textbook, and we've shown that textbooks don't help people score high on this test, mm. then you're at a disadvantage simply because you're not kind of pushing yourself to to use a tool that's a little unfamiliar. So, you know, it's there's just so many factors, I think, for non-traditional students that give them a dis- advantages and dis- disadvantages. So some of the best residents and doctors I've worked with were non-traditional medical students. But if the score is kind of what we're talking about and how important it is, and I'm sure it's just as important to non-traditional as it is to traditional students, then you know we need to kind of help those non-traditional students identify, you know, what's causing that gap and, and help them, you know, get up to the, the same level as the traditional students. Mm-hmm. Do you have uh, any other data that shows big differences between maybe genders or races or anything else like that? So, you know, there is data and it's not, I hate talking about it because it's not super strong, hard and fast data, but they do show that males score higher on the USMLE and Comlex for n- unknown reasons. And that's an interesting data point that I've seen come across many times and I've pondered it and we haven't spent a lot of time, you know, as a company looking at why that is, but it, you know, I think there are just so many factors involved and it, it almost spans out to, you can talk about pay gaps and such that extend. So there, there's gender differences in, in scores in both in medical school, as well as the USMLE and Comlex that still exist and are statistically significant. And I wish I knew why those existed, but you know, then we could have some specific strategies to suggest. But unfortunately, as of now, I don't think anyone's quite identified why that difference exists. Okay. What else do we need to know about scores and failing and anything else? You know, I think in, in general, with as with anything else, you know, self-care and stepping back and, you know, taking a little pressure off is the best thing people can do. There's so much pressure. It's like years and years of it that builds up from undergrad through MCAT, you know, the med school admissions process. And if you don't let that ease a little bit once in a while, I mean, you'll just you'll end up extremely unhappy and burnt out. <laughs> so yeah, which is that's what, 60, what, 60% of our workforce is, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I really, I, mean, I spend a lot of time, you know, outside of 
Board Vitals talking about just wellness and self-care. And I just think that's is so important for, for students. Identify what, you know, what makes you feel better and what makes you feel good, what makes you happy, and make sure to have some of that integrated into your week or it'll be a sad, sad, sad week. <laughs> yeah. All right. So there you have it. Some more board rounds for you talking about scores and what you should be shooting for when it comes to residency and all of that fun stuff. I know when I was in medical school, that was one of the most stressful things is, oh, there's my board score. Is this going to to get me exactly what I need? Hopefully, listening to this podcast and getting a head start on your board prep will get you the score that you need. Again, go check out Board Vitals at boardvitals.com for their QBanks for step one or level one. And if you're further on in the journey in a couple of years, check out their shelf exam materials as well. And use the promo code board rounds. It's all capital letters, board rounds for 15% off. Hope you have a great week. I'll see you next time here on Board Rounds. 